Welcome to the Dr. Bill Telephone Education Series. Tonight's topic is an overview of retinal conditions. Dr. Bill Takeshita is Chief of Optometry for the Center for the Partially Sighted, as well as Director of Low Vision Training for Braille Institute. We are pleased to welcome our very special guest tonight, renowned retinal specialist, Dr. Thomas Lee, Director of the Vision Center at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. For those of you joining us for the first time, the Dr. Bill Telephone Series is an educational program focusing, focusing on pediatric eye conditions for parents, teachers, and other professionals working with young children with visual impairments. The information presented should not be considered a medical consultation, but information that will help us understand pediatric eye conditions better. So without further announcements, I'll turn the discussion over to you, Dr. Bill. Oh, thank you very much, Sue. It's a real, real pleasure for all of us tonight to have Dr. Lee here. For many of you who do know Dr. Lee, you know that he is truly one of the leaders in the world with respect to vitreal retinal surgery. And Dr. Lee performed his undergrad studies at Johns Hopkins before going to medical school at Cornell. And he then later did a fellowship at Harvard at the Mass Eye Ear Institute. He has numerous uh, papers published, and he was the director of many different organizations and clinics throughout the East Coast. So we're very, very pleased to have uh, you here today. Welcome, Dr. Lee. Thank you, Dr. Bill. Uh, I just wanted to comment that it's an honor to sort of be asked to speak tonight to your audience, and hopefully I'll be able to give some additional insight. Um, I think one of the things that's often a challenge for parents and patients is during an actual eye exam, uh, the, the office and the physician may not have as much time as they would like to sit down and talk and explain to the parents. So this is actually a great way for us to address questions that really deserve more than just a two or three minute answer. So I'm, I'm very excited about tonight. Yes, and, and I, I really, really am so grateful for your time. I know that you've been in surgery all day. You've had meetings this evening, and uh, for you to spend this time with us tonight uh, really shows your dedication. But, you know, as, as we have spoken before, one of the things is that it is very difficult for us as clinicians, and especially as uh, you as ophthalmologists, it's very, very difficult for you to be able to spend the time that you may want to to answer every question that a mother or a father or family members may have because in most cases, parents don't really understand these visual problems and they often have thousands of questions, but the shock and the anxiety doesn't allow them to do so. So we, we hope that with these particular types of programs and recordings, people can go back to it and they could listen and they could share this with others. But the first thing I wanted to talk to you about is the condition that's called FEVR, mm -hmm. familial exudative vitreal retinopathy. And this is something that I would have to say we tend to be seeing a quite consistent number of children who do have this condition. And would you tell our audience what is FEVR? And can you tell us what are the different types of functional problems that this particular retinal condition can cause? Sure, I'd be glad to. So 
F-E-V-R is an acronym for familial exudative vitreoretinopathy, a very long medical term. And what it refers to is a hereditary condition arising from a defect in a pathway that sort of disrupts the normal development of the eye. And specifically, uh, like many parts of the body, when a baby is developing in utero in the womb, the eyes are going through a process where a number of different events have to happen all together. And they have to happen in a very specific sequence. So when you look inside the eye, you have a cornea, the lens, the iris, the outer white coat, which we call the sclera. Then you have the retina inside the eye. You have the choroid, which is just underneath the retina. You have the optic nerve. So there are a number of different pieces that all have to fit together. And more importantly, they all have to develop according to a very specific program. Should any one of those programs be disrupted from a genetic mutation, then what can happen is that you can have uh, an abnormality that could ultimately lead to blindness. So in the case of FEVR, the disruption occurs in the program that's responsible for creating blood vessels, normal blood vessels, in your retina. So the retina is the very back lining of the eye. It acts much like a chip would act in a camera. So the computer chip in a camera that detects the light, that's similar to your retina. And uh, the way I'd sort of describe it is the retina is actually a part of your brain. It developmentally is an extension of the brain. And the reason is that when an image is focused into the eye and displayed onto the retina, the retina takes all of that information and processes it in real time to some very complicated math to do what's essentially video compression. So for those of you who have ever watched a video on Netflix or iTunes or video on demand, what you see on your television is actually not what's being transmitted. What's being transmitted is a very compressed signal that then gets expanded when it hits your TV. So your retina is like a cable box. It does real-time video compression that allows your brain to see moving images very, uh, very accurately. When that structure becomes disrupted or damaged due to any number of things, you quickly lose your visual uh, fidelity and acuity. Now, what happens with FEVR is that retina, which is the back lining of the eye, doesn't develop the blood vessels it normally should. And in response to that, there are parts of the retina that have no blood supply and are in a state of what we call ischemia, meaning that they're not getting the necessary amount of oxygenation from the blood. And so they release signals. And these signals will trigger a response to try and grow new blood vessels. So when you have an, a baby where this program is now uh, mutated and disrupted and is now not doing the normal thing it should be doing, which is supplying all of the retina with blood vessels, when that happens, that part of the retina that has no blood vessels sends out these signals 
which in turn cause new blood vessels to grow in the wrong direction. And this is the important part. It creates scar tissue in the eye. Once that scar tissue develops in the eye, it can tug and distort the retina. So if you think of your retina like your bedspread and you're making your bed and you're tucking in all four corners and you want that bed sheet to be smooth like on the surface of the water, what that scar tissue and fever does, it takes that bedspread and it tugs on one corner and it tugs really hard. And as a result, you get a wrinkle or a fold through that sheet, which in the case of the eye would be the retina. And that causes distortion. It can even cause a retinal detachment. So in FEVR, you have a process where a genetic mutation has caused abnormal blood vessel growth that recruits scar tissue that tugs on the retina, and then leads to loss of vision. Now, because of the, the fact that it's genetic and both eyes are genetically identical, oftentimes this will affect both eyes. It's not a painful process. The eye doesn't become red. There's no way for a parent to know that this is something that's inside their child's eye unless an eye doctor looks in or as a result of the loss of vision, the child's eye becomes lazy and wanders outward or inward. So because of the silent nature of this condition, it can progress without the parent ever even realizing that something's going on in the eye. So I don't know Lee, if that's a good enough explanation, but that's sort of the short version. Yeah, that is excellent. But in many ways, this story almost sounds somewhat similar to retinopathy of prematurity when the child born prematurely has abnormal blood vessels and the eye then grows new blood vessels that will leak and scar tissue could develop. Uh, in FEVR, are you able to perform surgery to either prevent the retina from tearing or detaching or can you also do anything to obliterate those abnormal blood vessels? Yes. Uh, the answer is yes to both. Uh, it depends on the patient. To take a step back, uh, this other condition that Dr. Bill has referred to, retinopathy of prematurity, essentially is identical to fever, except that rather than having a genetic mutation, that same pathway that we talked about in fever is being disrupted, not because of a genetic mutation, but because the child is premature and is being exposed to oxygen from the atmosphere as opposed to oxygen from his mother's womb and placenta. So just like an ROP where you can do laser treatment or even if necessary do surgery, you can sometimes offer that same treatment to children who have been recently diagnosed with FEVR. Now the difference is that when we have a child who is born premature, we're actually looking for the disease and identify it before it actually becomes severe. So every child who's born premature will get an exam by an eye doctor on a regular basis to look for any active ROP. And as a result, oftentimes when we do the laser treatment or if necessary surgery, we're coming in on the early side. With fever, because most children will never have a family history of it, because children will not develop a temperature, the eye won't become red, it won't hurt, because this happens silently, 
as physicians, we're often brought in on the tail end after the scar tissue has developed, after vision has been lost. So it's not that we can't do treatment, but the effectiveness of the treatment is much is very diminished because of how long, how much of the disease has come to pass. Um, I do think that there is a there is a subgroup of patients who do very well with this treatment, and I'll explain that. The ideal patient that would present with it, with a, a new diagnosis of fever would be a patient who is coming to the attention of the doctor because the mother sees that one of the eyes turns out or in. Fever oftentimes affects both eyes, but not necessarily to the same degree or severity. So I have a number of children who present, and the doctors look in, and they say, you know, this child has something in one eye. It looks like scar tissue. Maybe it's fever. Maybe it's another condition called persistent hyperplastic primary vitreous, PHPV. Another name for that condition is called um, uh, fetal vasculature, persistent fetal vasculature. It can mimic fever. Only happens in one eye, though. So there will be times where I'll see a child who's newly diagnosed with fever. One eye will have very advanced disease, scar tissue, everything else. The other eye will actually look pretty quiet. But then once we do more careful studies on that child, and the study in particular that's very helpful for fever is something called the fluorescein angiogram, which specifically identifies blood vessels and their abnormalities. In those cases, in those patients where one eye is severe, the other eye is very mild, we can prevent blindness in the better eye by doing the same type of laser treatment we would do for ROP. So laser treatment can be very effective in those cases of fever that are caught early. Surgery may also play a role, but it's it's, a, it's, more, it's of, of less value. It can be helpful in some patients, but I would say in most patients who have fever, the scar tissue is advanced enough that going in and doing invasive surgery will not necessarily provide any improvement in the quality of the vision or the prognosis. So um, I will oftentimes use laser treatment if I think the other eye has active disease that could progress. Um, I will occasionally recommend surgery if I think that the area of tugging and detachment would get worse over time, but not always. Now, Dr. Lee, is there a particular region of the retina that is more likely to suffer damage, the central retina or the peripheral retina in fever? So um, if you go back to thinking about your retina like a bedspread, the very center of that bed sheet is where your macula would be. That would be the place where you do your fine vision, your reading, et cetera. Fever typically starts off at the very edge, so like at one of the corners of your bed. Now, if scar tissue is allowed to develop at that edge and you start a gentle tug, what you'll see is you'll see the center of your bed sheet move a little bit, and we call that dragging. And the macula can tolerate a certain amount of dragging and still have relatively good vision. But the more tugging that happens, especially if it develops a fold, the less likely it is that the macula 
will continue to function in a normal way. So the, the disease starts off at the very edge, but because of the, the, the mechanics of how your retina is lying down flat, even something at the edge tugging a little bit can have a, an effect that's transmitted right to the center of your retina. And I think that with this condition, because children will not complain of pain, their eyes will not be red, they will not have discharge coming out of their eyes, and if it does begin in the peripheral retina, the child may not show any symptoms, for example, that they cannot reach accurately for a toy or they're tripping and falling. And, and this is why it's critical, it's really critical that all children do receive a dilated examination by a, a retina specialist. Yes, there's, um, there's um, a lot of discussion in our community, in our professional community, about exploring what we call universal screening for eye diseases. And it, it's not just what the pediatrician would do, which is sort of pick up one of those portable, what we call ophthalmoscopes, and just sort of shine a light in the child's eye and see the color that reflects back. We're actually talking about using a digital high-resolution camera, which we actually have. We have two of these at our hospital. Um, and that camera is being actually used in certain countries like China to screen every newborn child, and not just to look from the outside, but look inside the eye where this camera can actually look directly at the retina. Um, but having said that, that's not something we're doing in this country for different reasons. And so really that responsibility falls upon both the pediatrician and more likely the parent. Um, there are a number of diseases that can affect a child's eye, one of them being a very devastating condition called retinoblastoma, which is a cancer that occurs in the eye. And when we look at how these eye problems were detected, 87% of the time it was the parent that noticed the problem before the pediatrician did. And that sort of makes sense because the pediatrician might be spending five minutes with the child and it would be very easy to not have the child look in a certain direction to pick up the disease. Whereas a parent will take hundreds of photos and look at these photos very carefully and will be the first people to pick up if there's a funny white glow or reflex in the eye. And so fever is one of those things that in some cases can actually have an altered red reflex. So you know how when you take a flash photograph, you might see, I guess some people refer to them as devil eyes, the eyes will be red. Mm -hmm. What the camera's looking at is the blood vessels in the back of the eye. And because they're red, that's why your eyes glow red with these cameras. But there are certain conditions where the reflex shining back at the camera may not be red. It might be white or it might be yellow. So parents really are the first line of defense in detecting childhood blindness in large part because they spend time looking at their kids and they take photographs. So if a parent thinks that there's something abnormal for whatever reason, maybe they think their child's eye isn't quite aligned. Maybe they see something funny on a camera, a flash photograph go to the pediatrician and request that their child be seen by, ideally, a pediatric ophthalmologist. Because early detection is so critical in 
And I think it's also very important to remind everybody who's listening that many times there are people who will perform vision screenings on infants. This may be ophthalmologists, it may be optometrists, but in some of these screenings, if they do not dilate the pupil, this is not adequate. They may not identify the problem. Now, Dr. Lee, with fever, it is called familial, meaning that it does have a genetic component. And can you share with the audience, uh, what is the inheritance pattern? And if there is one child who does have it, what are the chances that another child may have it? So fever can happen from a disruption of something called the Wnt pathway. And with these conditions, depending on the type of mutation, uh, most mutations will result in what is called an autosomal dominant or autosomal recessive, so a dominant or recessive pattern. And what that basically refers to is in a recessive inheritance, what's going on is there is a disease that's occurring because a good, important gene is missing. And when a good, important gene is missing, it requires both family, both parents, both mother and father, to carry that mutated gene that is no longer working. Now, when you have a condition like that, it generally is that either one of the parents is affected and then one of the parents is a carrier, or both parents are carriers meaning when I say carriers, they may not actually have the disease themselves, but they may carry a copy of a mutated gene. And as a result, in that setting where you have a recessive condition and it's causing the gene not to function at all, in that setting, one in four or 25% of the children will end up having the disease. Now, there's another inheritance pattern called dominant. And in dominant, what happens is, rather than having a good gene that you need, and because we have two copies of every gene, one from our mom, one from our dad, in dominant, rather than having an important good gene be lost, you have a normal gene that gets mutated into something bad. And in that setting, you can have only one copy needed to actually create the disease. And so let's say you have a parent that's affected, and it's a dominant disease, a dominant mutation. 50% of that parent's children will inherit that gene with that bad mutation. And so half of the children will go ahead and get the disease. So with fever... There are different forms of fever. Um, you can actually have autosomal dominant. Uh, there's also a version that can be autosomal recessive. And there's even an X-linked form of fever. And what that's telling us is that fever can be caused by a number of different mutations that each has its own inheritance pattern that can ultimately lead to the same outcome and the same disease. So without going into all the molecular biology, 
Um, when we see a family come in, uh, it's hard to know up front, unless there's a very well-documented family pedigree, which form the patient may have. Um, I've had, uh, when I was in New York, prior to coming to L.A., uh, I remember very vividly a family where the sister, the first child, had a condition that looked very much like fever. It had scar tissue in both eyes, the severe form, the child was blind. The mother was also pregnant. And when the mother uh, had her second child, it was also a daughter, we saw that daughter within two weeks of birth, and she, in fact, had something that looked like fever, exactly like fever. And in her family, we suspect this was probably the autosomal dominant form. It was very, you know, 50% chance as opposed to the 25% chance. So depending on the type of mutation, there are many genes that make up the pathway that creates fever. And you can poke and prod different parts of that pathway and ultimately get the same outcome. The inheritance pattern might be different based on the mutation. So it's, it's hard to say that it is really just autosomal dominant or autosomal recessive. But I think what's really great to, that we, we learned from your discussion of fever, Dr. Lee, is that the earlier the detection, the better prognosis where you can treat this with either laser or other types of surgery. And in the form of low vision aids, what we can do as low vision optometrists, we can help children who do suffer from vision impairment from fever. It is one of the types of conditions that we are often happy to receive these referrals because we often find that they do respond very well to the visual aids. Now, the next topic that I want to ask you questions on is another somewhat similar type of condition of the retina. It is inherited, and this is X-linked retinoschisis. Can you tell our listeners what this condition is and how does it differ from fever? Well, X-linked retinoschisis, uh, like fever, can uh, result in blindness. Like fever, it can oftentimes will affect both eyes, but it's due to a very different process. So when you look at the retina, and, you know, we've talked about how important it is uh, from an architectural standpoint that the retina be in the proper location. And the problem with fever is that, well, you distort it, you tug on it, you pull on it, you lift the retina off, you get a detachment, when the retina becomes detached, what we're saying is that the retina, and the retina, keep in mind, is made up of 10 layers of very interconnected, sophisticated neurons. So it's like almost like a layer cake. When you create a retinal detachment because scar tissue is tugging on it, you're taking all 10 layers of the retina and lifting it up as one unit. And underneath the retina, the, what we call the photoreceptors, which are sort of the business end of the retina. They actually capture the photons of light. When those photoreceptors are lifted up off their backing as part of this retinal detachment, you don't see very well. Retinoschisis is, can look very similar to a retinal detachment. It affects the retina, but 
there's a very key difference. Rather than lifting up and separating the retina from its backing as one piece, the separation that happens in retinosthesis is actually within the retina itself. So it's as if you took a layer cake and cut it horizontally in half. So the, the first couple layers are still stuck to the pan, and then the other half of the retina, those layers are now lifted up in the air. When you have a retinal detachment, if you reattach the retina, because the retina was never disrupted itself, it was all lifted up in one unit. When you reattach the retina, you can potentially recover vision. When you have retinoschisis, what's going on is half of the retina is staying attached. That's the part that's anchored to the wall of the eye. But the other half of the retina is lifted up, and when that part of the retina lifts up, it gets separated from its counterparts below. And what's connecting the retina through all those 10 layers are millions and tens of millions of very fine, intricate, intricate neuronal connections. Keep in mind that your retina is essentially a computer. It's a very sophisticated computer doing very sophisticated math, do very sophisticated video compression to stream that signal to your brain in real time. You can imagine that if you went into your computer and randomly started yanking out boards, it would stop working. That's what happens in retinosthesis. You have this very complex computer where you basically have a disease that cuts across horizontally and fillets the retina in half. So it's almost as if you are making a, you know, if you have a fish and, you know, you cut the fish in half so that you can poach it, steam it, whatever, that's what's going on in retinoschisis. Half of the retina gets separated. So even if you found a way to recompress the retina together, those connections have been forever broken. And in that setting, that's not a reversible process. So when we have a patient who presents with retinoschisis, the visual prognosis is different than if they had fever or ROP because the vision that's been lost from this process will not generally come back. Now, I'm going to have a caveat to that. Children are incredibly robust. Their brains are incredibly adapted, adaptive. And so it may be possible that in children we could see some reconnections occur. But unfortunately, with retinoschisis, we are not very good at sticking those two pieces of retina back together again, unlike what we could potentially do for ROP or even fever. So when we have a child who presents with retinoschisis, X-linked retinoschisis, the changes that have happened are hard to reverse, and really our goal would be to potentially prevent those changes from spreading to the remaining part of the normal retina. Now, unfortunately, we're not very good at that either. We can, in some cases, um, have some benefit for it, but it's very tough. So one of the things that is hopeful, and I think, that Bill, Dr. Bill, you were going to mention this, is that there are certain genetic eye conditions that are candidates for future trials of what's being referred to as gene therapy. It's a process where you actually try and replace the gene and its protein that are defective. It turns out that for a number of reasons, X-linked retinoschisis may be just one such candidate disease. 
I don't know if you want to get into this part now in terms of genetic testing, but I think yeah. X-linked retinoschisis is definitely a candidate. Keep in mind the trials are not available at this time. Now, what is specifically involved when a parent asks about gene testing? Um, what, what should the family expect? Is this a painful procedure for the child? Is it just a matter of taking blood, or how does it work? So in genetic testing, and uh, again, there's going to be some caveats, which we'll go into in a minute, but essentially in genetic testing, um, the, there's going to be an assumption that we're going to make. The scientist knows the defect that they're looking for. So they have a gene that they suspect may be causing this child's form of blindness. And then they know the sequence of that gene. And so in that setting where they know the genetic defect and they know the sequence of the proper gene, the correct gene, it's possible to take a sample of fluid from the child and then using those tiny little cells that are present in that tiny little sample, they can use a process called PCR, which is polymerase chain reaction. For those of you who watch Jurassic Park, it's the same. That's actually a real process. You would take PCR, and you would be able to sequence the gene that you think is causing that child's problem and then determine if there are any mutations that could cause a, uh, a problem in the function of that gene. So those cells historically have come from blood. So in some cases, the child would have to give a sample of blood. And, you know, as parents, we, we don't relish the fact of having our child brought in to have a needle stick. Bad enough with the vaccination shot. With this, we actually have to get a sample of blood. If the child's going to be under anesthesia, it's not a big deal. Um, but, you know, historically, the way we've done it is we send the child to the pediatrician's office, we get a sample of blood. The technology is now becoming more sophisticated where you can start to do this on other body fluid samples, including saliva. So that process is not as accurate. It's not always as helpful, but it does work often enough that that's now becoming more of an option, and it really kind of depends on the testing facility and the type of gene they're looking for. But I, I suspect that as the technology improves, we'll be looking at more cases where you just have your child spit into a cup and then pass that off to the lab. Or do what we call a cheek swab, where we take a, essentially a little sponge or a Q-tip and swab the inside of the mouth and collect the cells through that. Now, when those samples are, are taken, uh, they're sent to different uh, hospitals or clinics and such. Mm -hmm. And what is usually the cost for that? And also, what is usually the turnaround time that a family may anticipate that they get some results? So it depends. There are different mechanisms to get testing. Some of the testing can be done through a commercial facility, and those commercial facilities will charge, you know, it varies. Usually it's on the order of thousands of dollars. The turnaround time can vary. Um, it's not something that you just sort of pull into the, you know, the drive-thru and hand them your sample and then get a result back the next day. Um, and in part, it's because the scientists actually have to sequence the entire gene and they have to repeat it and they have to repeat it because if the gene test comes back negative, 
they may not know if the child actually doesn't have the mutation or did their testing process miss an actual mutation. That's why they have to repeat it and do all these other subsequent tests. So by the time a negative result comes back, it may have gone through, that sample may have gone through three, four, maybe even five different methodologies to just make sure that the, doc, the scientists weren't missing something. Now, there's another way of getting your genetic testing done, and that might be through a study. Now, with a study, it's usually done with an academic medical center, and they have uh, uh, a protocol that's been approved by their hospital to study this in humans. And in that setting, the process can be even longer because oftentimes they're trying to develop the actual commercial test that might be used in the future, and so that takes even longer. So it's not uncommon for samples to be sent off, and it takes years to come back. So, And that can be frustrating. Now, the good news is because it's part of a study, generally that's paid for by the federal government or by that institution, and the patient doesn't have to pay for it. But still, the process can be very long. And in the end, you may not get an answer. You might get an answer that says, we were not able to find a mutation. It doesn't mean that you don't have a mutation. It just means that we were not able to find one. So, um, you know, it, 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 patients' experiences will vary. And it really is uh, something that has a lot of variability still. Well, at what time you, as, as a clinician and as a researcher, would you say that a particular type of clinical trial would be appropriate for a child? It depends on the disease you're talking about. Right now, for gene therapy for the retina, there are only a handful of trials that are even at the early stages. Uh, one of them is for something called Labor's congenital amaurosis, and that's the one that has gotten the most press. Um, it's a very specific type of mutation. Uh, there aren't a lot of patients who have this mutation, so if you take 100 patients who have some type of hereditary retinal disorder, maybe only a handful, maybe three or four or five of them might have this LCA, Labor's congenital amaurosis gene mutation, that might be uh, eligible for the gene therapy trial where you replace the defective gene with the correct gene. Um, that's probably the most well-known trial. Uh, there are some other trials that are up and running, uh, but they're still very much in the early stages. Um, my own feeling is um, generally with these treatments, uh, you have to make an assumption that you may only have one shot at a treatment. So I generally recommend that if patients can um, wait it out, that they see how these trials go before making any decisions for themselves because you wouldn't want to be in a situation where you have two eyes, both of which are affected, and you enter a trial where one eye gets treated. Keep in mind that if your eye has been treated on a trial and let's say the trial doesn't really result in much, you may be disqualified from having enrollment in some future trial where the treatment actually does work. And the reason you're excluded and disqualified is that they may only do this in eyes that have never seen gene therapy before. So I, I would just recommend that 
if you can afford to wait, then wait to see how some of these early trials pan out, whether it be X-linked retinosthesis or Labor's congenital amaurosis. And Dr. Lee, with uh, children who do have X-linked retinoschisis, and you mentioned that the layers, that, uh, retina, which has 10 layers, it actually will begin to split right, right mm -hmm. near the layer of the photoreceptors. Is there any particular type of medical treatment that you can perform that may help to prevent that region of the retina from splitting? There is a treatment using a medication that can be taken in pill or eye drop form called dorzolamide or acetazolamide. Um, there's evidence that it seems to reduce the degree of swelling in the retina. So retinoschisis in its more advanced form is actual physical separation of the retina cut in half or filleted open. That's the later stage of the disease. The earlier stage of the disease is where there's just some swelling. So what ends up happening is schesis, the term schesis actually refers to cavities. And so when you look at the retina that's undergoing these changes, the first thing you see is little bubbles. And these little bubbles collect inside the retina towards the middle layer. And the bubbles or these cavities of fluid start to coalesce and they become bigger and bigger and bigger. And once they get to a certain point, it's, they've essentially boiled away the retina in the middle, leaving this gap. And then that gap becomes a full-fledged schesis cavity. So the very early stages of this is the collection of fluid in the retina. And there's some evidence that sometimes these drops or pills can reduce the degree of that swelling and those bubbles. Now, the reality is that when they tested these patients who took that medication, the medication didn't actually improve the vision. So they were able to see a mild effect on an exam called an optical coherence tomography, an OCT. An OCT is, a, is basically almost like a laser that scans your retina and scans it and can create a three-dimensional representation of your retina at almost a cellular level. So when they give patients this medication or drop, the OCT showed that there seemed to be less fluid accumulating in those clefts, but the reality was it wasn't improving anyone's vision. And so the problem is that you can treat this condition potentially with this medication, but there's no evidence that it actually has an impact on the disease. So I think very much when I talk to my colleagues, they'll they'll give it a try, but it's not it's not something that we would tell a parent or a patient take this medication because it's going to prevent your disease. And does the region of the retina that usually have this particular type of pathology where it splits does this usually affect the macular region first, where it will cause the child to have blurred vision? Or is it similar to fever where it will affect the peripheral retina? Or is it random? It could be either place. Well, it turns out that these little bubbles that we talked about actually begin very early on, right in the fovea. And that the fovea is the central portion of your macula. It's where you do all your fine vision work. Now, 
for reasons that are not clear, those bubbles don't necessarily on their own coalesce to give this full-fledged splitting. That generally happens out in the periphery. So like fever, the severe elements of excellent retinosthesis start off at the edge. And it's a splitting where the element now becomes, is free to become elevated. And to someone who's not used to seeing X-linked retinoschisis, an ophthalmologist might look in and say, oh, my God, that's a retinal detachment because the, that first superficial layer of the retina is really coming up towards the front of the eye, just like you'd have in a detachment. Well, that process, which starts off at the very edge, can progress and march closer and closer and closer to the macula. And if it does that, then, yes, it will go right through the macula and at that point, that central vision will also be lost. So I guess the answer to your question is it can happen both in the central portion and the peripheral portion at the same time, but it's the peripheral portion that usually causes the more devastating aspects of the disease if it marches and progresses into the central portion. Now, one of the things that I was really, really interested in, in hearing more about was some of the research that the researchers that do work for you at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, that they have been able to produce in the laboratory the 10 different layers of the retina along with the fibers that connect these 10 layers. Can you tell our audience about that and what may be some of the future treatments uh, that this particular type of really amazing finding may hold? Well, you know, if you were to ask me five years ago, would we be able to grow eyes in the laboratory? My answer would have been no. I don't know where you read that. I don't know what you just drank, but that's, that's crazy talk. And that would have been my response five years ago for very justified reasons. And then about four years ago, a paper came out of a laboratory in Japan that actually showed that with mice, if you took a form of a stem cell from a mouse, you could actually grow a retina, a full-fledged retina in a Petri dish. And it had all 10 layers, and each layer demonstrated the properties that you would expect for that type of neuron. They seemed to talk to each other, and they actually formed a bowl like what your retina would look like. And after that paper came out, there was a tremendous amount of excitement in the scientific community that maybe we could actually grow retinas in a dish and think of all the clinical applications that might, that might include. So without uh, trying to launch too much into science fiction, I will tell you what we're able to do today. Uh, that group in Japan focused on a mouse model. And as we know, mice are not humans, and there's certain things that happen only in mice, and there's certain things that only happen in humans. So that although a mouse is helpful, in the end, we're really interested in what we can do with human cells. So our lab has been focused on creating a similar process in the dish with human cells. If you can do that it opens up two immediate uh, possibilities. One, obviously, is that you could repair damaged retina 
with healthy retina created through this process. And that's sort of what we refer to as regenerative medicine, where you can actually regenerate parts of your body. Now, keep in mind that may sound like science fiction, but our body is doing it all the time. You have stem cells in many parts of your body, including your brain. To give you an example, we now believe that your ability to to remember things is in part because your brain is creating new neurons, new brain cells every hour. And if you remember this phone call next week, next month, even maybe next year, it's because a brain cell, a neuron is being formed right now while you're listening to my voice that is going to encode and capture this information and archive it so that a month, a year from now, a decade from now, you'll be able to remember what we're talking about. And that happens because your brain has a area in its in the center which has a collection of stem cells, neuronal stem cells. So your body is actually has the ability to regenerate and repair. Your bone marrow is another example. That's how you can do bone marrow transplants. Your bone marrow has a stem cell, and you can transplant stem cells into another person to repair their damaged bone marrow, just like you would with, let's say, uh, skin graft. So this concept of having regenerative medicine is actually not science fiction because your body is doing it already, but for whatever reason, not in the eye. So if we could actually take this and artificially create stem cells for the retina, we might be able to replace some of the damaged tissue. Salamanders do this. You can damage the retina in a salamander, and it'll grow a new eye. So will a goldfish. So we believe that it's possible, and the work we're doing right now, we actually have these human retinas growing in dishes. It takes about 130 days to make a cup, a retinal cup. And we're getting fairly close to creating the 10 layers that you would see in a normal human retina. So we're devising ways to actually harvest some of those cells specifically, such as photoreceptors. So there's a regenerative medicine component that we're looking at. But there's actually probably what will be a more important component, and that's a concept called personalized medicine. And personalized medicine entails identifying drugs that will work to cure disease in a specific patient who has a disease caused by a specific pathway created by a specific gene mutation. So what do I mean by that? Let's say you had a disease that was affecting an organ of your body, and you knew that there was a whole class of drugs that could potentially prevent that damage from happening over the long term. But not everyone would respond to the drugs the same way, meaning not there may only be one out of the ten drugs that would work for a specific individual. Well, how do you do that then? How do you know which, which drug to pick? Which drug would actually have the best effect? The way we do that now is we give a patient a drug and we wait five years, ten years, see how much damage is done, and then if it's not working, we switch to the next drug, and then we have to wait longer. 
So imagine if we had a patient who had retinitis pigmentosa, and we knew that over the next 30 years that patient would go blind. But we didn't know what drug would actually be helpful, and we're going to make an assumption that as technology moves forward, we'll start to develop drugs for these different conditions. Imagine if we could go in and take a sample, maybe a hair follicle, maybe a little piece of fat that harbors what could be ret what we can create as retinal stem cells. Imagine if we could harvest a sample from a patient. That sample would carry that patient's mutation that's causing them to go blind. We would then create little tiny retinas in a dish. And then because we have hundreds of these from one patient, each one carries that genetic mutation. Each one of those is going to have that problem that the patient already has. And then take a library of different medications and start to treat these hundreds of retinas all at the same time. And instead of waiting five years, ten years, we could actually, under the microscope, potentially identify the effective drug in three months or six months. So this wow. same thing called disease modeling is really, really powerful because it lets us fast forward into that patient's future and predict which drug might help them before they actually succumb to a lot of damage from that disease. And that time machine is created in the lab by doing these tiny little retinas. And because we're harvesting this from their fat or their hair follicles, we can actually create retinal disease that this patient may not even have developed yet before it actually happens. So for those of you who've seen this movie by Tom Cruise called Minority Report, it's a movie where in the future the police can actually predict the crime and stop it before it happens. And that's what we're trying to do in the lab. So through the use of a lot of interesting novel technology, there may come a day where we could either repair damaged tissue through regenerative medicine or we could predict disease before it happens and treat it before it causes anything that will rob a child of sight. That's, that's amazing. That's powerful. So we're out of time right now. I want to thank you very, very much, Dr. Lee. This is extremely, extremely yeah. helpful. And, Dr. Lee, um, can you give our listeners contact information of how they can contact you to make an appointment or just to simply ask questions? You know, if they wanted to ask questions, uh, my secretary is Ruth, and the number from my office is area code 323-361-4510. If they would be more interested in making an appointment, the front desk to the clinic is 323-361-4510. 361-7887. And is, is that all for appointments at Children's Hospital, or is that also if they live in some of the surrounding areas where you have satellite clinics? Um, that is the clearinghouse, and then depending on where they live and their insurance, we can sort of figure out where would be the best place to be evaluated. Okay, great. Thank you very much, Dr. Lee. This has been very, very, very helpful. And I also want to make another quick announcement to all of you who have children that are school age. This coming Saturday, November 16th, is what is called the 5th Annual Best in Tech. This is uh, put on by the Center for the Partially Sighted, 
and the National Federation of the Blind, where there will be vendors and workshops and actual users of technology, and they will tell you about what is the most effective computer and assistive technology that has helped them for, for this particular year. So it is a free event. It begins at 8.30. Again, it is at the Doubletree Hotel in Culver City. And if you're interested in attending, there's many tremendous items that are being raffled off. You can go to www.bestintech, B-E-S-T-I-N-T-E-C-H, dot info. So it's bestintech.info, and I look forward to seeing you there. So thank you very much. And, Sue, you want to go ahead and say some closing remarks and let us know what we have in store for next month. Well, this was just great. We want to thank, thank you so much, Dr. Lee. Uh, I also wanted to put a quick plug in for your website at the Vision Center. Um, there's some wonderful information uh, on the website for the Vision Center at Children's Hospital Los Angeles we use frequently. Um, next month, we will be um, talking a little bit more uh, playful subject, and we'll be talking about toys and encourage ideas to encourage play. So it'll be a little bit more of a social topic for next month. So thank you so much. Okay. Good night, everybody. Thank you very much, Dr. Lee.